Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, I'm Ian Drake, and this is the New Books and Law podcast. I'm joined today by Professor John D. Michaels, who has written a book entitled Constitutional Coup, Privatization's Threat to the American Republic. Professor Michaels is a professor of law at the UCLA School of Law in California. Uh, John, thanks for joining us today on New Books and Law. Thanks for having me. So, what uh, you know normally when you think of a coup that sounds pretty bad so um what is the coup that you have identified so this is a uh, slow burn of a coup as it were um the the concern that i'm i'm trying to raise here is that over the past few decades um, uh, an essential element of our constitutional structure has been um, systematically undermined, and it's uh, it's facilitating the type of uh, power concentration, consolidation um, that we would normally associate with um, constitutional tyranny, particularly given the uh, our political culture and our historic um, fears that date back to the founding of. Uh, of uh, tyranny through uh, concentrated power. Again, the sort that Madison and and his folks were um, trying to prevent at all costs. Okay. So this is historically rooted. You're concerned with some of the, you are articulating some of the same concerns that Madison and the other framers had in the 1780s. Um, But what is the nature of the coup? Yeah, so the the specific coup is um, uh, uh, that, or the slow burn, as it were, is the the tearing apart of our administrative governance, our, our, the structures that protect and, uh, and empower various groups to participate in administrative governance, just like they allow the participation in uh, constitutional governance. And the specific uh, instruments that are doing so are uh, centered around uh, what we colloquially call privatization in America, which uh, has has been a kind of a rampant uh, and, and very popular um, trend over the past few decades in particular, um, but very few have kind of uh, drilled down to see the way in which it's uh, disabling our, uh, our ability to practice administrative governance um, uh, safely and effectively, as it were. Okay, so... Now, normally, uh, when somebody talks about centralization of power and uh, so forth, they're talking about the in- increase of power in government and their fear of it. But it seems to me that you are talking about um, you are concerned with the opposite, which is the, as it were, privatization of what you see are essential or central governmental functions. And you see that as a kind of centralization of power, correct? Yeah. So it's a little bit of a... Um uh, a counterintuitive story. Most people who've been talking and decrying privatization uh, associate it with an abdication of uh, state 
power. Um, we get, and a lot of the media that reports on it, that's what they seize on. Uh, uh, what, what we think about is the military contractors who've gone, gone off uh, in their own direction and uh, the state has no idea what's going on um, or um, any other type of contractor would go on what, what lawyers might call a frolic and detour. Um, and the concern is that the government has lost control of the reins of uh, uh, its power. Um, I'm telling a slightly different story. And the story here is that the contractors aren't these renegades, but they're actually compliant uh, and rational economic actors. They're, ser- they're, they're quite uh, able servants of the particular administration that has hired them. What makes them so problematic in my story is that they're more compliant, more subservient to the agency leaders that run the EPA, the Department of Defense, you name it, um, than would be the civil service. Um, the civil service doesn't have the same incentives or um, vulnerabilities that make them such compliant cogs. Uh, to satisfy the uh, presidential agenda of a given administration. Um, so the, the safeguards the, the, uh, that I was referring to in our first uh, set of back and forth was that the bureaucracy is, uh, plays a really meaningful role in checking and balancing the, let's say, whatever excesses there may be from a political administration. Um, the contractors, on the other hand, don't, don't play the same role, and they're generally... Um, uh, willing to carry it out, not because of any um, uh, uh, v- uh, uh, bad motives or, or tr- disconcerting agendas, but simply because they're hired to do their job and the bureaucrats are hired to serve the state, even if that means they'll push back. So the long story short, privatization consolidates power under the executive. Um, of course, there are opportunities for contractors to go haywire, but all their incentives are to actually serve the state, uh, serve, sorry, serve the administration um, uh, quite well. So we don't see the, an abdication of power, but rather a, a reconfiguration of power that actually makes it a little, makes it refines it in a way that makes it more potent than it would have to be were it to be uh, uh, put through the the uh, the process of uh, bureaucratic um, implementation. So let me ask you how you see this problem. Is this primarily a problem that a, kind of an economist would define as an incentives problem? And so that the incentives are, in your view, wrong and that we need to jigger with those incentives in order to get people to act the way we want? Or is this a problem of philosophy in terms of governance and what we think is good versus bad governance and the things that government should and should not do? That's a great question. And the answer is it's both or it's somewhere at the, the, the intersection of the two. So it's a political economy story. Um, what motivates, what, what actually kind of you know, initiated what I'm calling this coup is this frustration with the uh, economic incentives or lack thereof of bureaucrats. So the civil service uh, story which became a kind of popular story in the public choice world, uh, you know, 
starting in the 60s and 70s, really picking up in the 80s, is that bureaucrats are lazy. Bureaucrats have the wrong incentives to carry out the mission of the state. Uh, They're insulated from political hiring and firing decisions. It's really hard to remove them. It's hard to get them to be creative because their salaries march in lockstep, as it were. So what should we do? We should run government more like a business. Um, and if we run government more like a business, we can fire the bad people. We can hire the ones who aren't working hard. We can hire and fast track those who are uh, especially industrious. Okay, That's the story about why we need to kind of uh, winnow down the civil service, replace them with um, contractors who are who are full-fledged economic actors. The problem with that story um, is is then when the when political economy meets philosophy, because the question is, what is the purpose of the state? If the purpose of the state is a fine tool, uh, a fine-tuned uh, 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 business machine, as some would want it to be, then yeah, that's the pro- that might be the right way to go. But government has a fundamentally different purpose. It has different expectations. It has different powers and responsibilities that it must uh, uh, be cognizant of. And it arises out of a very different culture, a different um, philosophical organizational culture. It, efficiency is not the hallmark uh, feature of the American constitutional system. In fact, the system is designed to be uh, uh, skeptical of efficiencies because with efficiencies, um, uh, there is uh, the, the kind of classical liberalism. The, the efficiencies are going to um, uh, uh, infringe upon liberty. Just the more power you have, the fewer opportunities for checks and balances, the more danger you can um, uh, or mischief you can cause the American people. Now, that's the classic liberal story, but I would say even progressives who believe in big government should be similarly concerned about um, the dangers of a business oriented government because, uh, for a variety of reasons, um, uh, uh, but the, mainly because uh, there is an important role that, uh, that uh, expertise, that reason giving, that fidelity to law. Uh, plays in the administration of our laws, the the creation of our rules and regulations. Um, And the concern with having uh, uh, efficient actors, as it were, is that efficiency in the political realm really boils down to political expedience, not saving dollars and cents. And this is completely on display today. When you see the contract, sorry, the civil servants that this administration is most frustrated with are not the ones who are sitting at their desk you know, shopping on Amazon. It's the ones who are the most industrious, the most capable, the ones who are hammering home commitments to best scientific practices, commitments to procedural rigor. It's not the it's not the kind of waste, the the wasted talent. It's the it's the ones who have the most vigor that are being targeted. And that wouldn't happen in a business setting. Business setting would reward those folks um, and be comfortable with the their let's say their commitment to um, both procedural and substantive rigor. Okay. So when you say this administration, of course, you're referring to the Trump administration. We're recording this on April 23rd, 2018. And so we're in the second year of the Trump administration. Um, you've said a lot in what you just said. And uh, let me, I want to break it apart and let me kind of push back in one sense to uh, challenge uh, some of your thesis here. Um on the one hand, as you note, there's this reputation that bureaucrats are perhaps inherently lazy or that they've got all the wrong incentives. And if that has any truth to it, 
Um, does that necessitate, though, the privatization of what government does versus perhaps some other alternative ways of doing it? For example, what if you um, – well, let me, let me start with this. Do you think there is any truth to the conventional wisdom on bureaucrats and all the incentives? Okay. So yeah, thank you for slowing this down because there's a lot of pieces that we could work through a little bit more um, systematically than I presented them. Um, So if you believe that the bureaucracy has the wrong incentives, one of the attractive ways about contracting out is you don't have to reform the system. You just bypass it. So the reason why privatization is so popular and has been popular for so long is you simply circumvent uh, a very a deeply entrenched system. Um, what we're seeing now, what we're seeing increasingly since the let's say the, the the in the in the 21st century, is actually because some of the 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 um, commitment to the civil service has waned over the years, and again, well before Trump, um, we're actually seeing um, civil service reforms of the sort that make. Um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of more of, of civil servants at the federal level and equal numbers at the state and local level, um, uh, they're, they're being um, reclassified as at-will employees. So if your real concern with government workers is that they're too insulated, they become too set in their ways, the most direct way to go about changing that is not necessarily to work around them, but to all of a sudden reclassify them as at-will employees. And because the politics of the 21st century, if you want to throw around kind of um, uh, 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 labels that don't perfectly fit the situation, but that capture some of the the essence, the neoliberalism of the times has enabled uh, uh, reforms of the civil service um, to make them essentially um, look and, 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 and function a lot like private sector employees, which is often without much uh, uh, work, workplace protections. Um, so you can get at it um, directly or indirectly through contracting around them. Well, one sense that I had in reading your book was that you downplay the criticisms of uh, government work and workers that you you portray them in somewhat of a heroic fashion as disinterested experts. And the way I would kind of push back, and I want your thoughts on this, is that um, the hallmark of the progressive, meaning the original progressives from the late 19th, early 20th century, was that they viewed government and administration as two things that essentially could be separated. In other words, Congress was there for the ideologues and the fighting interests, but that all of that would flow into a calm reservoir of disinterested expertise at the administrative level. And so that you could really get a good government, which at the same time seemed to satisfy in some fashion back in the, with the hoi polloi, uh, mashing it out, bashing heads back in the Congress, uh, that once you got to the administrative state, you could really get, uh, perhaps more efficiency. Yes, but also essentially de ideological government, in other words, non-ideological government. What do you think about that original conception? And is that what you're arguing for? Okay. So that original conception, um, I think doesn't play out. And for all the reasons that it's fallen out of favor, um, simply that the, the essence of, uh, uh, administration today encompasses so much, um, uh, 
f- kind of first order decisions that have great uh, great political valence. Um, as Congress increasingly delegates big and hard choices to the agencies, the agencies have themselves had to become primary lawmakers. Um, and as they've become primary lawmakers, of course, there's huge value choices. There's also huge value choices in enforcement protocols and who you, um, how you stagger the um, uh, the prosecutions to build up a, a a a an administrative set of of case law, as it were, to um, support broader powers or different powers. Um, so I think that's right for that that model of separating out administration and politics to have fallen by the wayside, at least in in, a, in a, the reality that has uh, faced us for uh, 80 to 100 years, which is Congress doesn't want to make the hard decisions. So how does that fit into my story? Um, it changes the nature of administration such that the box that we would call pure administration in the past has to do both jobs. It has to do the politics and it has to do the administration. And I think we're actually well set up for that. Um, And the way we're well set up for that is we have the interplay of politicos and bureaucrats in every agency. The political leadership, um, the folks who are principal and inferior officers as defined in the Constitution, they're the the secretary of of transportation, the assistant secretary, um, the the regional directors, the high high brass of the agencies. Um, And they're political animals. They're the ones who are appointed and serve at the pleasure of the president. Now, they don't just get to run... uh, uh, Without run essentially the entire agency by themselves, uh, they have to work hand in hand with technocrats who uh, are part of helping shape the administrative agenda, um, assign uh, prosecutorial or enforcement uh, priorities, and support their policymaking. Which, if you look at any agency rules today, looks a lot like pure legislation. Um, the combination of the expertise and the and, and the political, um, let's say, uh, the political uh, leaders, as it were, is essentially what validates um, our shift from uh, a system that never really existed, but that we conceived of as having politics to administration. Now we have politics and administration under one roof. And to the extent now we're trying to gut or transform the bureaucrats into something else, then we're having politics from Congress into politics and administration without much uh, uh, technocratic um, uh, uh, input, except to the extent that the politicos find it um, desirable and compatible with their agenda. So uh, you talk about the separation of powers and how it was originally conceived as a battle between, in Madisonian terms, uh, jealous parts of the government that are jealous of each other's powers um, and how they conflict within their constitutional roles and thereby check each other's powers. Now, this is the story we've all heard since elementary school. But you then, I think, argue, and this is a unique argument, it seems to me, uh, that there is a replication of this separation of power within the administrative state, which is, I think, what you were just articulating. In other words, there's a representative function, there's a judicial function, 
um, and then there's an executive function. Um, so can you explain that idea of how the separation of powers applies within the context of the administrative state? Yeah, so this is um, uh, this this is the other set of critiques, as it were. So um, the constitutional conservatives. So we started off talking about uh, privatization and the kind of neoliberal effort to transform the administrative state. If we back up a few steps, um, the big concern with the rise of uh, administrative power, particularly around the New Deal, is hey, this is completely inconsistent with our system of checks and balances. So we have the, as you mentioned, and as we all know, the executive, the legislative and judicial powers all separated under their constitutional system. What happened? We decided that was too clunky to work with uh, in an age of industrialization and an age where um, social welfare needs are being responded to in a much more uh, attentive fashion than we had in the 19th century. So we need to have a supercharged kind of federal apparatus. What do we create? Agencies. How do agencies look? Ah, we combine lawmaking, law execution, and adjudication all under the same roof. And that's the, the you know, the Department of Interior, the EPA, whatever, whatever it, your favorite set of agencies or, or, or most disliked agencies are, they generally have those three components baked in. And that's a major threat to our constitutional commitment to separating and checking power. So here's how I respond. I don't I can't respond to the textualists and the originalists who look at the constitution and say the constitution as written is the constitution we should have. But for those who care about a, uh, the the dynamics that underscore our constitutional culture, the spirit of our constitution, I say don't worry so much about this concentration. And the reason why we shouldn't worry about this concentration is when you peer inside this black box, yes, all three Big functions are combined, but we have an internal system of checks and balances. Um, one one key set of counterweights there are the ones we've been talking about um, since we started this conversation, which is the political leadership and the independent bureaucrats push and pull at each other, um, and that replicates a, a, an important form of checking and balancing. And the third uh, counterweight within the administrative black box, what I call the administrative separation of powers, is actually us. It's civil society. Civil society plays an autonomous and powerful role in both checking and shaping administrative policy. And they do so by putting pressure both on the politicos and by putting pressure on the bureaucrats, and also by um, putting forward their own agenda, putting forward their own ideas. In fact, that's the, the impetus for major climate change um, a regulation. Of course, we don't have any legislation, so it, everything is done through regulation, actually came from the civil society. Okay, so one of the concerns of uh, constitutional conservatives, let's talk about the ones that you say you can't really speak to, the originalists or the interpretivists. Um, the reason... I assume that you cannot speak to them is, is I read them as saying not that the constitution as it is, is what we should have, but rather that expansion of powers outside of the constitutionally established entities, i.e. the executive, the judicial and the legislative is itself unconstitutional because that's not what was contemplated um, by Madison and the other framers. And so it's not necessarily a wishful, um, you know, pining for bygone days, but rather it's a interpretation that says, 
effectively, uh, in a nutshell, listen, uh, you, you can't go beyond this to create these entities, the administrative state, that's essentially a legislature unto itself with little public scrutiny and, uh, the insularity that the employees have. Um, and, and therefore, You've combined all these functions, but that's not the only problem. You've also created essentially a fourth branch of government, which granted one of the branches, the legislature, the Congress is more than happy to delegate authority to them because it takes pressure off of them. But their willingness to do all of this and the and the courts post 1930s acquiescence in this is not merely wishful thinking on our part, but it's rather a concern for the legitimacy of government. We don't have to say that Madison got it right per se, but rather that we've been given what Madison gave us and we can change it through the amendment process. You know, these arguments, these are familiar from the interpretivists, but how do you respond to those people? I know you say you can't really speak to them because they're speaking in some ways a different language, but um, what do you say to those who say, listen, uh, you want to create an administrative state, uh, you're going to have to change the way the Constitution is understood because this really greatly departs from the Madisonian system. Yeah, so um, I think you're capturing the essence of that well. I think the 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 where you might see a little bit of wiggle room um, with the originalists is okay. If you want to have an administrative state, it has to be solely under the purview of the executive. Um, as is laid out, because the president has the power to appoint, subject to Senate confirmation, um, officers of the United States. So, if an administrative state is going to grow, it has to do it. It, it can't lawmake, uh, and it has to be. Enti- it's an entirely kind of uh, adjunct of the presidency, um, both of which I find. Um, uh, uh, challenging to say the least. Um, I just work in a different methodology. I don't believe that the Constitution is, the con- our Constitution is what was um, uh, stipulated and prescribed uh, in in the 1780s. Um, if I did, um, there would be so many other ways in which our system is also, um, act, uh, we're basically governing ultra vires because there's so many other ways in which an originalist understanding cannot make sense of the world in which um, we, we function in and um, uh, uh, govern ourselves in and protect each other and protect ourselves from the government um, as well. So when I say I don't have much to say to the originalists, it, it's because we're working in completely different methodolo- methodologies and have a kind of a fundamental, uh, 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 let's say, uh, different uh, recognition of what the Constitution um, uh, prescribes versus um, lays out for us. And when I say lays out for us, it lays out a set of a core principles, core normative commitments, core sets of guides that 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 uh, discipline us and that also should inspire us to um, make government workable in the future. And so I, I consider myself actually deeply rooted in the constitutional tradition. A lot of people who are pro-administrative state um, simply say, ah, the times have changed and we have a living constitution and we've we've retooled ourselves outside of the Article 5 amendment process, of course. We've ruled our, we've retooled ourselves to um, uh, make things right in the modern industrial state and now the post-industrial state. Um, I say, no, what we, re- we retooled ourselves
ourselves, but we did so in a way that's quite faithful to the underlying commitment, which is a fear of concentrated, consolidated power. Um, and what concerns me about privatization is actually that is a more uh, extreme version of administration that is uh, further disconnected from our commitment to checks and balances. And that's what we should worry about. So I'm trying to actually tack a middle ground to say that, yes, I believe in the administrative state, but it has to be an administrative state that's faithful to the underlying principles of checks and balances and triangulated power that harmonizes um, uh, 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 populist interest with um, more Mandarin interest, as it were. Okay, I'm not ignoring privatization and its emergence. I want to deal with that in detail in a, in a few minutes. But to stick with this uh, conceptualization of tripartite uh, division of uh, check and balance uh, powers within the administrative state, I want to talk about that in a little greater detail because one of the key um, virtues, as it were, even as Madison himself saw it, this famously is from Federalist 10 and Federalist 51, where you have um, – jealous interests checking each other for power, thereby reducing the threat of tyranny and consolidation. Um, it seems to me that one of the potential defects in the administrative state is not just the housing, as it were, of legislative, administrative, or executive, and judicial functions all within the same entity, but it's also, and this is where you're trying to move beyond that concern and you describe these different players within the administrative state who seem to bear these burdens of um, checking each other. It seems to me, though, that one of the criticisms of what you're proposing in terms of how we should view the administrative state is that, well, the public, for example, the public has an, a, a comment period um, when rules are proposed, but Really, the people that take advantage of that are organized interests. They're not you and me. I mean, granted, you, you as a law professor and me as an under, undergrad professor, we might be aware of the comment period if we look to the Federal Register and we might, you know. But many people, um, and we're talking about people from all strata of life, the average citizen, unless they're part of an industry and this is part of their job is to watch new regulations coming down the pike as a practical matter, that public participation is extremely limited and it's limited really by design, isn't it? So great point. So, so a pillar of my tripartite administrative governance, as I've suggested, and you've come back to now is civil society and our capacity to participate meaningfully in the process. The challenge to that is, uh, uh, both structural and, uh, uh, well, let's start with the structural one is people aren't really participating. People don't have access People don't have the incentive. And, and I'd go even further. People, even if they had the access and the incentive, they may not have the wherewithal uh, because we're dealing with sophisticated regulations. So um, if that's true, and I think it is true, um, uh, we have a problem insofar as one of my three pillars is not up to the task or it, it, it uh, because it is a, let's say, it what we see as what I call civil society is really 
morphed into or 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 been pared down into special interests that have uh, vast resources and are sophisticated um, and are repeat players. And that's not what we want. And um, so there's two questions there. One is that is that actually was that intended to be that way? And two, how can our how can the system be legitimate in in light of that? Um, uh, So one, I would say it was not fully meant to be that way. It was expected that the um, interest that would arrive, that would come to the fore and participate would represent a broad sampling of American interests, a broad and diverse set of American interests. It hasn't always worked out that way. Um, so there is a problem for, in the original conception. Um, but more importantly, there's a problem in practice every single day. Um, to the extent that's true, to the extent the public is not participating meaningfully and as a cross-section, so as a representative uh, 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 slices of the American uh, uh, nation, the American public and the American political economy. Um, I think that's a grave problem. And so part of the last, uh, the last two chapters of the book is about making the civil society participation really meaningful. Um, and there, um, just to back up a step, we have some of these same problems though with Congress over time. Um, first of all, it wasn't clear how democratic Congress was ever intended to be. So there might be some parallels there. Um, the other parallel is that today special interests seem to dominate. Uh, this is not my, you know, obviously we all think about this and know this and may dispute it on the margins, but the, you know, people don't vote in, 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 in meaningful numbers in many elections uh, and people, the ordinary people feel left out of the process or, um, uh, you know, or they can't, there's no responsiveness unless they're showing up at $2,000 ahead um, fundraisers. Um, so the problem in some ways is a more systematic uh, reflection of the structural inequalities in our system that have made open processes open only in name and not in reality, given that there are some with great sophistication participating. I think it's a grave problem. I think if we, if you were to, if I were to just kind of rest on the merits of there being a public access to the participatory, to the regulatory process, I would have a very impoverished view of the administrative separation of powers, and I wouldn't probably be endorsing it. I think there needs to be a massive overhaul of our, our ability to allow the public to participate and to make that participation um, meaningful and broad. So I agree with you that, and, and this also goes back a little bit to the question about, well, is our bureaucracy really as heroic as as you suggest it is? Um, and I know this is going off, uh, off topic, but my answer there is not always and not particularly today, but we can get back to it. Okay. And so um, you rightly note the comparison with general elections. Um, it's really the presidential election that seems to draw people out. Um, and one suspects that even if we could somewhat whimsically change the structure of the government and allow, for example, for agency heads to be elected themselves, um, who would come out and vote for that? Probably the organized interests. Right. Yeah. Oh, just, just to be clear, that's not what I was advocating. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that would just be that would somehow that would just be like mini presidential elections. I, I feel as if the, the agency heads are properly represented as um, uh, as uh, deputies of the president of the president. But but that also fuels some of the concerns about letting, you know, just letting the agencies be run 
by the politicos. You know, we have a system. Um, if you if if you think about our system before the rise of administrative agencies that essentially do most of the work of governance today, you had the Congress and the president have to work together to make legislation happen. Uh, today. Um, because Congress has basically receded into the background, and this is not just a a you know uh, a Paul Ryan moment. This is something that's been going on for decades. Um, uh, uh, you know, most a lot of, of, of federal drug regulation is working off of a hundred year old statute, and environmental regulation is working off of a forty eight year old statute. Um, these are dated dated authorizations from bygone times. So the the white the administration of governance has 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 put itself in the forefront, uh, again, by congressional assent, as it were, or, or compl- uh, acquiescence. And um, if you have the president's team run the agencies, you're essentially having a, a group of, uh, or let's say a political movement that maybe, maybe got 49% of the popular vote, and maybe 60 percent, it'd be great turn, 60 percent turns out. So you're having a minority faction essentially run the entire federal government. Um, why administrative separation of powers is important is because the other actors, both bureaucrats and at least in, a, in, a, in the capacity for all of us who aren't necessarily happy with any one administration, regardless of its political contours, um, we get to per- we get more bites of the apple. We get to participate in governance, because in part because Congress isn't. So we've had to cr- we've created a new infrastructure, as it were, to funnel um, essentially counter-majoritarian input. So we have not just the courts involved, but now we have the bureaucrats involved and they're insulated like judges are insulated. And then we have the populist strains. And I don't mean populist in a particular political moment. I just mean um, uh, Democrat, small D Democratic strains through our participation or our potential participation in administrative governance so that um, whether you're a, a Obama Democrat or a, a Bush Republican, that those guys don't just absolutely take uh, regulation and run it in, in completely different directions. So we have these massive switches from Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump, and regulation would would flail from hard right to hard left at a, you know at the snap of a uh, of fingers. What we have instead is we have steady, dedicated, um, relatively consistent policymaking that's informed and shaped by the politics of the moment, but not entirely. Uh, dictated by it. Okay. So let's um, switch our focus on to privatization. Um, You've described it as essentially the privatizing, meaning uh, privately managed or at least privately operated um, enforcement of public law. So it's essentially still something that's nominally uh, controlled by the government, certainly probably funded by the government, paid for by the government through taxes, but it's carried out by private actors. And that's one form of privatization. Now, of course, we could to, – to privatize might mean different things in different contexts. So can you explain what are the parameters that – when you say privatization is a threat, um, is what I've just described the, the key manner in which that threat is, manifests itself or is there something additional? Yeah, so it's that's largely uh, kind of uh, on mark. So privatization in in most other countries actually doesn't mean what we t- tend to refer to it in, in the United States. In most other countries, um, privatization is the selling off of state assets. 
So British Telecom uh, was pri- you know is privatized, or um, you know they uh, an air, national airline is privatized. It's sent to the private. It's it's essentially spun off from the government, and there's a public auction for it, and it becomes uh, uh, some ind- private industry that's you know more or less going to be regulated the way you know IBM would be regulated or. You know, General Motors would be regulated. So it definitely has a, a, a an Americanist flavor to it, in part because we never really own that many. We don't have that many state assets. So we never really went through this, that type of, um, uh, let's say, contraction. Um, what we have here is we have the um, uh, uh, hiring of of private actors to carry out government responsibilities. And those responsibilities span from environmental regulation to uh, prison prison management to um, uh, the development of uh, uh, new tools for intelligence, the intelligence agencies to data mine. Um, there are uh, contractors that are assigned specific roles. Um, some of the roles are kind of tip of the sphere roles where they're just, they're just simply carrying out policy. And in, in many others, uh, they're, they're helping to shape and they're making policy as they go along. Um, whether it's about you know welfare eligibility standards or about you know what is the type of um, behavior, let's say again in a prison that merits rewards as opposed to um, punishment. So today, because we outsource so many government jobs, so so many government jobs, um, we can't just assume, and we should. It, it would be wrong to assume that they're simply carrying out orders that have already been uh, completely hashed out by entirely public hands, as it were, and that there's very little discretion at the back end. Or that's That may be true for the private company that um, does your trash collection, but oftentimes, it, it, you know, municipal trash collection, but oftentimes the, that, that same company is developing sanitation policy and telling the, and, and working with the agency about, you know, What's recyclable? What what's our what's our policy on this? And it's not simply the the last second execution where there's very little discretion. That is one. That is the major component of the type of privatization I'm concerned with. The other type is something we've also referenced, which is the privatization of of government operations from within. And so, for me, the transformation or the reclassification of longtime civil servants to become at will employees is a privatization of government as well. It's an internal privatization. It's the changing of the kind of our own operating protocols to meet the conditions or to match the conditions that that exist in the private sector. But you don't want that. You don't favor uh, treating them as at will. No, because it breaks down the um, administrative separation of powers, which I think is the linchpin of the constitutionality of the administrative state. Okay. So in in Madisonian terms, or well, okay, let me ask it this way. Uh, one of the concerns of political scientists for decades has been, and this is really mostly post-New Deal concern because the state increased at the federal level so exponentially, is what's called regulatory capture. And this is the concept of a private interest that's ostensibly regulated by the government having such a close sometimes cozy, perhaps even corrupt relationship with the entity or part of the government that regulates it or is supposed to regulate it, that essentially it's not quite as regulated as uh, public law or the words of the statute might suggest, and that really it's a protection racket in some ways 
and that the uh, regulated interest plays a great role in how regulation is formulated, how it's administered, et cetera. And it seems to me that you've recognized this phenomenon, but in some ways you essentially defend it because that is also the interests outside of government that are vested in being regulated. And so they play a role in this check and balance too, right? Yeah. So this is a hard, I think you're, you're right to be bringing this up and it's kind of a, uh, you know, the, because capture has this you know, kind of big meaning and big resonance. I, I think we need to be careful about exactly how we talk about it. And one of the, let me just take a step back because we haven't really talked about what are the true dangers of consolidated administrative power. We've, I've been saying this is a problem. This is a problem. And, and we've been talking about all the ways in which bureaucracy itself has problems. But let me let, let me just put on the table really clearly what the problem is if we have consolidated administrative power. And then we could talk about why capture um, is, is in some ways a more dangerous phenomenon under consolidated power than under our current system. Or let's say our, this, not our current system, but the system that I think worked and worked well for much of the 20th century prior to privatization taking off the way it has. Um, when you have uh, streamlined uh, consolidated uh, administrative governance, you are going to have uh, uh, either, uh, uh, let's say, supercharged regulation or supercharged deregulation. Um, and uh, uh, arguably, as the civil service looks weaker and weaker right now, as it as it is being attacked from from inside and without agents and outside of agencies, we're having more opportunities for um, the president's agenda to transform the administrative state. Um, the same thing arguably was happening uh, for, for, decent, for decent chunks of time in the latter Obama years, in part because Obama could not get anything done through Congress. So he put all, uh, many of his eggs in the administrative basket and ran, made major policy changes through um, through the agencies uh, uh, with little pushback. Um, I, I'm concerned about that. Even as someone who is you know, pro-regulation, I'm still concerned about those massive shifts um, or, or, or kind of oscillations between pro and uh, pro-regulation and deregulation because I th- don't think it's actually representative of our political community. Um, and I think it runs the danger of tyranny on either side. Okay, so just to be clear, that's why I'm saying, no, bureaucrats have to slow things down. And yes, bureaucrats may not be perfect. And uh, in fact, they aren't perfect. Um, but the, the friction... Uh, friction is what matters. Friction, friction, friction. Okay. How does capture come into the story? One of the concerns with capture is um, that, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting that a lot of times we associate capture with independent agencies. Um, Independent agencies um, lack, um, uh, they're the ones where the president can't fire the commissioners. The, the tops. It's not like you know being able to fire the Secretary of Ener- Energy or Secretary of Transportation. Um, they're insulated. So one of the concerns I have with independent agencies is that they're it, they're insufficiently rivalrous within. There's not enough pushback between the politicos and the bureaucrats. Uh, in an agency in which there is a vibrant political class and a vibrant bureaucratic class, there's much less likely for the regulated industries to venally capture the agency because they have to essentially convince or buy off both sets of actors. 
if an agency is more streamlined, it's easier to capture that agency because you only have to deal with one set of principles, not two sets of rivalrous principles. Um, so I do think capture is a problem, um, but we have to be careful about what we mean by capture. If capture is one group that has no business dictating policy, then capture is a bad thing. If capture is that the agencies have to take seriously a a number of vested interests, um, then capture looks like interest group politics. Um, It may not be the perfect version of it, and often it isn't, um, but but if we're just talking about agency, uh, sorry, uh, different interest groups having important voices and those voices being heard, um, we shouldn't automatically be suspicious of it. Again, we might be suspicious if they're the only ones brought into the room or the only ones capable of uh, amplifying their voices in the room for the reasons that you and I talked about, that civil society is is not necessarily um, uh, representative society, um, then yes, capture is a problem. But capture, I think, is less of a problem in a world in which there's internal rivalries within agencies than when agencies are homogeneously governed. Now, in your book, you mention uh, that privatization along the lines, as you've described it, has been occurring at the state and local level for quite some time. And um, and you had noted a uh, federal report uh, back in the 80s that cited successful privatization. And you don't go into it in great detail, but I was curious, what do you think of these assessments? I mean, maybe the assessment was wrong. You don't think it was successful. But in what way, then, do we judge privatization to be a success or a failure? Great question. Okay, so the technocratic story is we judge privatization to be successful when it uh, boosts what we think of as efficiency and when it saves money. That's the story that we've been telling ourselves and each other since the 90s in particular. So one of the moves from the Reagan privatization being straight, having a sharp ideological edge, um, what happens after the 80s is the Clinton administration f- – picks up on privatization and runs with it. And they don't package it as a way of eviscerating government. They frame it as technocratic, smarter government. And they do such a good job explaining it under those terms that it sets the agendas for, for how we are to evaluate privatization success or failure. And we do so in terms of whether it saves money and whether it, you know, it, it, adds innovation or, or there's some kind of creative factor or industrial factor that was otherwise missing that's now um, brought into the fold. I would submit that is not the core motivation for a lot of federal privatization. And we can go back to the difference between state and federal or local and federal in a minute. But I would submit that the real motivation for much of the privatization is political expediency. So efficiency there is political expediency. How quickly can we get our agenda done while preserving most of the core elements that we care the most about? And and exhibit A for why I think that's true is um, the fact that most contracting out at the federal level is uh, of policymaking responsibilities. Let me underscore that. Policymaking is not uh, not efficient on the on the accountant accountant's ledger. It often is much more expensive than if you just use the regular bureaucracy. And Exhibit B is something I referenced before as well. When the uh, agencies have the opportunity to uh, uh, hire and fire as they as they choose. Their hiring and firing is, is often looks very political. They're not hiring and firing based on um, 
you know, getting rid of the dead weight. They're getting rid of the people who have strong opinions, and those strong opinions are at variance with the agenda of the political leadership. Um, so privatization as practiced at, in federal policymaking domains feels like political expedience. Okay. Um, and privatization, and that's why at the state and local level, it's a little bit of a different story. A lot, a lot of the issues at the local level aren't as uh, politically, let's say, infused. I think it was LaGuardia who said, uh, "There's not a Republican and Democratic way to to pick up trash." Right. Uh, or, or right. But right. Um, uh, but so if that is true, it, it is not. First of all, I'm not sure that's true for large scale environmental and, and waste management policy at the uh, uh, anymore. But if it is true, that explains why you could be looking simply for, hey, the 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 government garbage collectors in, in my neighborhood, they want a pension, they want uh, um uh, they know they can't get fired if they sleep in all these things. So let's hire contractors who we can remove um, and uh, and uh, uh, basically uh, b- bend to our will what our preferences are. And um, just to reference, you know, this was a story in uh, I think this morning. So we're at uh, Monday, uh, April twenty third again. In this morning's New York Times about the uh, essentially how many state and local. Uh, government employees are barely making ends meet. In part, that's because privatization has made it so easy for uh, salaries and pensions to be cut, benefits to be cut, because there's someone who will be working, there's someone in the private sector who will take those jobs uh, uh, at much less pay. That's a different question than my constitutional question that I'm focusing on in the book. But it does, again, it further informs the reason why we can't, we shouldn't necessarily expect bureaucracy to be this potent force that it once was in the kind of uh, mid 20th century when it was at its its kind of golden golden era before it's been eviscerated by all these forces. Uh, now, one of the points that you mentioned is that often the privatization costs more, and that's because government's paying for it, right? In other words, it costs. Um, okay, go ahead. It costs more because it never really was. Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is because there's uh, some entity taking a cut off the top, and that's that's the profit. Um, and the difference between the uh, lower cost um, uh, that's 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 uh, let's say presented, if it's ever presented as a lower cost, is not sufficiently lower, you know, the uh, than uh, the public sector doing it. Um, when you add in the fact that the the company has to take its cut, and then when you add in the fact that the that some government officials have to manage these contracts, they have to draft them, they have to look them over, they have to monitor them, they have to decide whether to renew the contracts or bid the thing out again. Um, some some uh, public management scholars priced that at, at about twenty percent, right there. So unless the contracting firm can offer more than twenty percent cost savings. Um, it's unlikely to be um, uh, uh, that cost effective to do this. Um, uh, to to sorry to take jobs out of the public sector or work around the public sector and hire a contractor to do it to do this work in its stead. Okay, so near the end of the book, uh, and I'll, I want to uh, wrap up with this uh, discussing your recommendations, and you look to um, perhaps surprisingly or counterintuitively, you look to the military as an example or a model, perhaps, for how the government should be run in terms of the administrative state. Can you explain the military analogy? 
Yeah, so the military bureaucracy has a lot of things going for it that the most of the uh, social welfare bureaucracy, as it were, doesn't. Um, uh, the military has um, public cachet. The military has uh, people respect the military. Uh, military service is considered in most circles in this country honorable work. Bureaucrats uh, are considered increasingly dishonorable work. In fact, they're being called uh, all sorts of names today: dishonest, disloyal, swamp monsters, all these things. Um, but bureaucrats have not been a worthy profession for some time in many circles in this country. The military has been able to keep up. Um, uh, its image. It's been able to um, recruit uh, and and reward talent um, in in ways that, in some ways, we say, well, it's the military. Of course, people just gravitate towards it, and people respect it. Um, uh, but they actually have been running for years and years and years and years, very sophisticated, very resource intensive PR campaigns to continue to ensure that the military. Res- uh, 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 retains a vaunted, uh, uh, Im- uh, uh, a vaunted image in our in our kind of political consciousness. They spend more money. The the military's budget uh, for advertising um, is higher. Is is I think uh, several times higher than the advertise than the overall operating operating budget. The overall operating budget of OSHA which protects occupational safety and health in the United States. Um, just the, the PR campaigns, and you see this in movies, you see this in video games, you see this in um, commercials that, you know, a, a kind of quasi-impromptu displays at football and baseball games. I, I'm not saying that the bureaucracy should go on this, you know, insane public relations campaign to say, look, we matter too. But there are ways in which the bureaucracy if we cared about it, if we nurtured it, we could show the American people day in and day out how important and how essential their roles are and how good and decent the people are who work for them. We're so far from that universe right now that bureaucrats are basically trying to hold on to their jobs, trying to justify their position in the world and, and rate, retain their salaries. That, that's, that's a major problem. And it's, it's in part, it's a PR problem. And on top of that, how do we recruit and retain people? People are leaving in droves. And, and my students, for instance, they don't want to be, they don't want to join the civil service. They want to be the deputy to the specialist, to the, to the special assistant, to the attorney general or to the secretary of the agency. Why? Because the politicos have all the power in the agencies and the bureaucrats is, seems as a backwater. We need to change that. We need to uh, create incentives for people to go into the civil service so that bureaucracy can be a meaningful force in this country. And I don't mean force in a dangerous way. I mean, just a presence, a meaningful and important presence in this country as it once was. And again, the military does this well. The military brings people in, they pay for their education. They give them the, uh, mid-career jobs training. There's elite status conferred on the military academies and then opportunities to, to go and do further training at, say, the Army War College. Um, the pu- we need to think about public administration here the way not just the way we think about American military administration, but the way other countries think about public administration. Think about France or the UK. We have a much stronger tradition of kind of 
professional respect for technocrats who are public servants who could make a ton of money in the private sector or could do any number of other things, but are trying to commit themselves to some public end um, and to do it, to do their job well. And all the incentives today are for them to get out of the sinking ship. My guest today has been John D. Michaels, and his book is Constitutional Coup, Privatization's Threat to the American Republic. John, thank you for joining us on New Books in Law podcast. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. 